27. Yoli in its climate, flora, races and history shows the whole and full now of Asia, now of Africa. From it Asiatic influences have spread over Africa to Morocco and the Niger River on the west, and to Zanzibar on the south, permeated Abyssinia, and penetrated to the great equatorial lakes, whether in the form of that Mecca-born worship of Allah, or the creeping caravans and slave gangs of Arab trader, of all such intercontinental peninsulas, Florida alone seems to have had no role as an intermediary, its native ethnic affinities were wholly with its own continent. It has given nothing to South America and received nothing thence. The northward expansion of Arawak and carried tribes from Venezuela in historic times ceased at Cuba and Haiti. The Straits drew a dividing line. Local conditions in Florida itself probably furnished the explanation of this anomaly. Extensive swamps made the central and southern portion of the peninsula inhospitable to colonization from either direction. Transformed it from a link into a barrier. Peninsulas which conspicuously lack an intercontinental location must long await their intermediary phase of development, but do not escape it. The Cornish, Breton and Iberian peninsulas were all prominent in the transatlantic enterprises of Europe from the end of the 15th century. The first French sailors to reach the New World were Breton and Norman fishermen. Plymouth, as the chief port of the Cornish Peninsula, figures prominently in the history of English exploration and settlement in America. It seems scarcely accidental that most of Queen Elizabeth's great sea captains were natives of this district Sir Francis Drake, Sir John Hawkins, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, and Sir Walter Raleigh, the latter holding the office of Vice Admiral of Cornwall and Devon. It was the peninsula-like projection of South America about Cape Street Roque, 20 degrees farther east than Labrador, that welcomed the ships of Cabral and Americus Vespucci's, and secured to Portugal a foothold in the Western Hemisphere. Chapter XII Island peoples the characteristics which mark peninsulas, namely, ample contact with the sea, small area as compared with that of the continents, peripheral location, more or less complete isolation, combined, however, with the function of bridge or passway to a yet remoter lands, are all accentuated in islands. A list of the chief peninsulas of the world, as compared with the greatest islands, shows a far larger scale of areas for the former even if the latter be made to include the vast ice-capped land mass of Greenland to dot 170.000 square kilometers or 846.000 square miles. New Guinea, the largest habitable island, has only one-fourth the area of Arabia, the largest of the peninsulas. Therefore, both the advantages and disadvantages incident to a restricted area may be expected to appear in an intensified degree in islands. Peninsulas are morphologically transition forms between mainland and islands, by slight geological changes one is converted into the other. Great Britain was a peninsula at the end of the tertiary period, before subsidence and the erosion of Dover Channel combined to sever it from the continent. It bears today in its flora and fauna the evidence of its former broad connection with the mainland. In Pliocene times, Sicily and Sardinia were united by a land bridge with the Tunisian projection of North Africa, and they too in their animal and plant life, reveal the old connection with the southern continent. Sometimes man himself for his own purposes converts a peninsula into an island. Often he constructs a canal, like that at Kiel or Corinth, to remove an Isthmian obstruction to navigation, but occasionally he transforms his peninsula into an island for the sake of greater protection. William of Rubrukes tells us that in 1253 he found the neck of the Crimea cut through by a ditch from sea to sea by the native Comanians who had taken refuge in the peninsula from the Tartar invaders, 
and in this way had sought to make their asylum more secure. The reverse process in nature is quite as common. The Shantung Peninsula rises like a mountainous island from the sea-like level of alluvial plains about it, suggesting that remote time when the plains were not yet deposited and an arm of the Yellow Sea covered the space between Shantung and the highlands of Shanxi. The deposition of silt, aided often by slight local elevation of the coast, is constantly tying continental islands to the mainland. The Ikinods archipelago off the southwest coast of ancient Akarnania, opposite the mouth of the Achilles River, Strabo tells us, was formerly farther from shore than in his time, and was gradually being cemented to the mainland by Achilles' silt. Some islets had already been absorbed in the advancing shoreline, and the same fate awaited others. Farther up this western coast of Greece, the island of Lucas has been converted into a peninsula by a sickle-shaped sandbar extending across the narrow channel. Nature is working in its leisurely way to attach Sakhalin to the Siberian coast. The strong marine current which sets southward from the Okhotsk Sea through the Strait of Tartary carries silt from the mouth of the heavy laden Amur River, and deposits it in the narrows of the strait between Capes Lizarif and Pogobi, building up sandbars that come dangerously near the surface in mid-channel. Here the water is so shallow that occasionally after long prevailing winds, the ground is left exposed and the island natives can walk over to Asia. The close proximity of Sakhalin to the mainland and the ice bridge covering the strait in winter robbed the island of much of its insular character and caused it to pass as a peninsula until 1852. Yet that five-mile-wide stretch of sea on its western coast determined its selection as the great penal station of the Russian Empire. The fact that peninsular India accords in so many points of flora, fauna and even primitive ethnic stock with Madagascar and South Africa, indicates its former island nature which has been geographically cloaked by its union with the continent of Asia. Islands, because of their relatively limited area and their clearly defined boundaries, are excellent fields for the study of floral, faunal, and ethnic distribution. Small area and isolation cause in them poverty of animal and plant forms and fewer species than are found in an equal continental area. This is the curse of restricted space which we have met before. The large island group of New Zealand with its highly diversified relief and long zonal stretch, has only a moderate list of flowering plants, in comparison with the numerous species that adorn equal areas in South Africa and southwestern Australia. Ascension possessed originally less than six flowering plants. The four islands of the Greater Antilles form together a considerable area and have all possible advantages of climate and soil, but there are probably no continental areas equally big and equally favored by nature which are so poor in all the more highly organized groups of animals. Islands tend to lop off the best branches. Darwin found not a single indubitable case of terrestrial mammals native to islands situated more than 300 miles from the mainland. The impoverishment extends therefore to quality as well as quantity, to man as well as to brute. In the island continent of Australia, the native mammalia, excepting some bats, a few rodents, and a wild dog, all belong to the primitive marsupial subclass, its human life, at the time of the discovery, was restricted to a one retarded negroid race, showing in every part of the island a monotonous, early stone age development, the sparsely scattered oceanic islands of the Atlantic, owing to excessive isolation, were all, except the near-lying canaries, and inhabited at the time of their discovery, and the Canary Islanders showed great retardation as compared with their parent stock of Northern Africa. See map page 105. Despite this general poverty of species, island life is distinguished by a great proportion of peculiar or endemic forms, 
and a tendency toward divergence, which is the effect of isolation and which becomes marked in proportion to the duration and effectiveness of isolation. Isolation, by reducing or preventing the intercrossing which holds the individual true to the normal type of the species, tends to produce divergences. Hence island life is more or less differentiated from that of the nearest mainland, according to the degree of isolation. Continental islands, lying near the coast, possess generally a flora and fauna to a large extent identical with that of the mainland, and show few endemic species and genera, whereas remote oceanic islands, which isolation has claimed for its own, are marked by intense specialization and a high percentage of species and even genera found nowhere else. Even a narrow belt of dividing sea suffices to loosen the bonds of kinship. Recent as are the British Isles and near the continent, they show some biological diversity from the mainland and from each other. The influence of an island habitat upon its human occupants resembles that upon its flora and fauna, but is less marked. The reason for this is twofold. The plant and animal life are always the older and therefore have longer felt the effects of isolation, hence they bear its stamp in an intensified degree. Man as a later comer, shows closer affinity to his kin in the great cosmopolitan areas of the continents. More than this, by reason of his inventiveness and his increasing skill in navigation, he finds his sea boundary less strictly drawn, and therefore evades the full influence of his detached environment, though never able wholly to counteract it. For man in lowest stages of civilization, as for plants and animals, the isolating influence is supreme, but with higher development and advancing nautical efficiency. Islands assume great accessibility because of their location on the common highway of the ocean. They become points of departure and destination of maritime navigation. At once center of dispersal and goal, the breeding place of expansive national forces seeking an outlet, and a place of hospitality for wanderers passing those shores. Yet all the while, that other tendency of islands to segregate their people, and in this aloofness to give them a peculiar and indelible national stamp, much as it differentiates its plant and animal forms, is persistently operative. These two antagonistic influences of an island environment may be seen working simultaneously in the same people. Now one, now the other being dominant, or a period of undisturbed seclusion or exclusion may suddenly be followed by one of extensive intercourse, receptivity or expansion. Recall the contrast in the early and later history of the Canaries, Azores, Malta, England, Mauritius and Hawaii. Now a lonely, half-inhabited waste, now a busy mart or teeming way station. Consider the pronounced insular mind of the globe-trotting Englishman, the deep-seated local conservatism characterizing that world-colonizing nation, that once the most provincial and cosmopolitan on earth. Emerson says with truth, every one of these islanders is an island himself, safe, tranquil, incommunicable, hating innovation, glorifying their habitudes always searching for a precedent to justify and countenance each forward step. They have nevertheless led the world's march of progress, scattered by their colonial and commercial enterprises over every zone, in every clime, subjected to the widest range of modifying environments. They show in their ideals the dominant influence of the home country. The trail of the Oxford education can be followed over the empire, east to New Zealand and west to Vancouver. High school students of Jamaica take Oxford examinations in botany which are based upon English planned life and ignore the Caribbean flora. School children in Ceylon are compelled to study a long and unfamiliar list of errors in English speech current only in the London streets, in order to identify and correct them on the Oxford papers, distributed with Olympian impartiality to all parts of the empire.
Such insularity of mind seems to justify Bernard Shaw's description of Britain as an island whose natives regard its manners and customs as laws of nature. Yet these are the people who in the Nile Valley had become masters of irrigation, and surpassed even by the ancient Egyptians, who, in the snow-wrapped forests of Hudson Bay, are trappers and hunters unequaled by the Indians, who, in the arid grasslands of Australia, pasture their herds like nomad shepherd or American cowboy, and in the tropics lull like the natives, but somehow manage to do a white man's stint of work. In Japan, isolation has excluded or reduced to controllable measure every foreign force that might break the continuity of the national development or invade the integrity of the national ideal. Japan has always borrowed freely from neighboring Asiatic countries and recently from the whole world, yet everything in Japan bears the stamp of the indigenous. The introduction of foreign culture into the empire has been a process of selection and profound modification to accord with the national ideals and needs. Buddhism, coming from the continent, was Japanized by being grafted onto the local stock of religious ideas, so that Japanese Buddhism is strongly differentiated from the continental forms of that religion. The 17th century Catholicism of the Jesuits, before it was hospitably received, had to be adapted to Japanese standards of duty and ritual. Modern Japanese converts to Christianity wish themselves to conduct the local missions and teach a national version of the new faith. But all the while, Japanese religion has experienced no real change of heart. The core of the national faith is the indigenous Shinto cult, which no later interloper has been permitted to dislodge or seriously to transform, and this has survived, wrapped in the national consciousness, wedded to the national patriotism, lifted above competition. Here is insular conservatism. Japan's sudden and complete abandonment of a policy of seclusion which had been rigidly maintained for 250 years, and her entrance upon a career of widespread intercourse synchronously with one of territorial expansion and extensive immigration, form one of those apparently irreconcilable contradictions constantly springing from the isolation and worldwide accessibility of an island environment, yet underlying Japan's present receptivity of new ideas and her outwardly indiscriminate adoption of Western civilization is to be detected the deep primal stamp of the Japanese character, and an instinctive determination to preserve the core of that character intact. It is this marked national individuality, developed by isolation and accompanied often by a precocious civilization, in combination with the opposite fact of the imminent possibility of an expansive unfolding. A brilliant efflorescence followed by a wide dispersal of its seeds of culture and of empire, which has assigned to islands in all times a great historical role. Rarely do these wholly originate the elements of civilization, for that their area is too small. But whatever seed ripen in the wide fields of the continents the islands transplant to their own forcing houses, there they transform and perfect the flower. Japan borrowed freely from China and Korea, as England did from continental Europe, but these two island realms had brought Asiatic and European civilization to their highest stage of development. Now the borrowers are making return with generous hand. The islands are reacting upon the continents. Japanese ideals are leavening the whole Orient from Manchuria to Ceylon. English civilization is the standard of Europe. The Russian in his nose is aiming to be English, says Emerson. England has inoculated all nations with her civilization, intelligence and tastes. The recent discoveries in Crete show beyond doubt that the school of Aegean civilization was in that island, ancient Phoenicia, Argos, even Mycenae and Tyrians put off their mask of age and appear as rosy boys learning none too aptly of their great and elderly master, borrowing the seeds of culture from Asia and Egypt. Crete nursed and tended them through the Neolithic and Bronze Age, 
transform them completely. Much as scientific tillage has converted the cotton tree into a low shrub, the precocity of this civilization is clear. That early as 3000 BC it included an impressive style of architecture and a decorative art naturalistic and beautiful in treatment as that of modern Japan. From this date till the zenith of its development in 1450 BC Crete became a great artistic manufacturing and distributing center for stone carving, frescoes, pottery, delicate porcelain, metalwork, and gems. By 1800 BC 7 centuries before Phoenician writing is heard of, the island had matured a linear script out of an earlier pictographic form. This script, partly indigenous, partly borrowed from Libya and Egypt, gives Crete the distinction of having invented the first system of writing ever practiced in Europe. Yet all this wealth of achievement bore the stamp of the indigenous, nearly every trace of its remote Asiatic or Egyptian origin was obliterated. Here the isolation of an island environment did thoroughly its work of differentiation. Even on this Thalassic Isle which maintained constant intercourse with Egypt, the Cyclades, the Trot and the Greek Peninsula, Minoan art has a freshness, vivacity, and modernity that distinguishes it fundamentally from the formal products of its neighbors. Many of the favorite subjects, like the crocus and wild goat, are native to the islands, even where a motive was borrowed from Egyptian life. It was treated in a distinctive way, made tender, dramatic, vital, in religion. As in art generally, Crete translated its loans into indigenous terms, and contributed as much as it received. The curator of Egyptian antiquities in the New York Metropolitan Art Museum examined 500 illustrations of 2nd and 3rd millennium antiquities from Gornia and Vasiliki in Crete, made by Mrs. Harriet Boyd Hawes during her superintendence of the excavations there, and pronounced them distinctly UN Egyptian, except one vase, probably on importation. All this was achieved by a small insular segment of the Mediterranean race, in their Neolithic and Bronze Age, before the advent of those northern conquerors who brought in an Aryan speech and the gift of iron. It was in Crete, therefore, that Aegean civilization arose. On this island it had a long and brilliant pre-Hellenic career, and thence it spread to the Greek mainland and other Aegean shores. A small cup soon overflows. Islands may not keep, they are forced to give, live by giving. Here lies their historical significance. They dispense their gifts of culture in levying upon the resources of other lands. But finally more often than not, the limitation of too small a home area steps in to arrest the national development, which then fades and decays. To this rule Great Britain and Japan are notable exceptions, lying partly to the unusual size of their insular territory, partly to a highly advantageous location, Minoan Crete, in that grey antiquity when Homeric history was still unborn gave out of its abundance in art, government, laws and maritime knowledge to the eastern Mediterranean world, till the springs of inspiration in its own small land were exhausted, and its small population was unable to resist the flood of northern invasion. Then the dispenser of gifts had to become an taker from the younger, larger, more resourceful Hellenic world. The same story of early but short-lived preeminence comes from other Aegean islands, before the rise of Athens. Samos under the great despot Polycrates became, the first of all cities, Hellenic or barbaric, a center of Ionian manners, luxury, art, science and culture, the seat of the first great Thalassocracy or sea power after that of Crete and Minos, a distributing point for commerce and colonies, much the same history and distinction attached to the island of Rhodes long before the first Olympiad, and to the little island of Aegina, if we turn to the native races of America. 
we find that the Haida Indians of the Queen Charlotte Archipelago are markedly superior to their Lingit and Chimchian kinsmen of the nearby Alaskan and British Columbian coast. In their many and varied arts they have freely borrowed from their neighbors, but they have developed these loans with such marvelous skill and independence that they greatly surpass their early masters, and are accredited with possessing the creative genius of all this coast. Far away, on the remote southeastern outskirts of the island world of the Pacific, a parallel is presented by Little Easter Isle. Once it was densely populated and completely tilled by a people who had achieved singular progress in agriculture, religion, masonry, sculpture in stone and wood carving, even with obsidian tools, and who alone of all the Polynesians had devised a form of hieroglyphical writing. Easter Isle today shows only abandoned fields, the silent monuments of its huge stone idols, and the shrunken remnant of a deteriorated people. Isolation and accessibility are recorded in the ethnic stock of every island, like its flora and fauna. Its aboriginal population shows an affinity to that of the nearest mainland, and this generally in proportion to geographical proximity. The long line of deposit islands, built of the offscourings of the land, and fringing the German and Netherland coast from Texel to Awanrug, is inhabited by the same Frisian folk which occupies the nearby shore. The people of the Channel Isles, though long subject to England, belong to the Franco-Gallic stock and the Longdoyle linguistic family of northern France. The native Canary Islanders, though giving no evidence of previous communication with any continental land at the time of their discovery, could be traced, through their physical features, speech, customs and utensils, to a remote origin in Egypt and the Berber regions of North Africa prior to the Mohammedan conquest. Sakhalin harbors today, besides the immigrant Russians, five different peoples Amos, Gilyaks, Orokans, Tungus, and Yakuts, all of them offshoots of tribes now or formerly found on the Siberian mainland a few miles away, where the isolation of the island is more pronounced, owing either to a broader and more dangerous channel, as in the case of Madagascar and Formosa, or to the nautical incapacity of the neighboring coast peoples, as in the case of Tasmania and the Canary Islands, the ethnic influence of the mainland is weak and the ethnic divergence of the insular population therefore more marked, even to the point of total difference in race. But this is generally a case of survival of a primitive stock in the protection of an unattractive island offering to a superior people few allurements to conquest, as illustrated by the ethnic history of the Andaman and Kuril Isles. The sea forms the sharpest and broadest boundary, it makes in the island which it surrounds the conditions for differentiation. Thus while an insular population is allied in race and civilization to that of the nearest continent, it nevertheless differs from the same more than the several subgroups of its continental kindred differ from each other. In other words, isolation makes ethnic and cultural divergence more marked on islands than on continents. The English people, despite their close kinship and constant communication with the Teutonic peoples of the European mainland, deviate from them more than any of these Germanic nations deviate from each other. The Celts of Great Britain and Ireland are sharply distinguished from the whole body of continental Celts in physical features, temperament, and cultural development. In Ireland the primitive Catholic Church underwent a distinctive development. It was closely bound up in the tribal organization of the Irish people, lacked the system, order and magnificence of the Latinized Church, had its peculiar tonsure for monks, and its own date for celebrating Easter for nearly 300 years after the coming of St. Patrick. The Japanese, in their physical and mental characteristics, as in their whole national spirit, 
are more strikingly differentiated from the Chinese than the agricultural Chinese from the nomadic Bariat shepherds living east of Lake Baikal, though Chinese and Japanese are located much nearer together and are in the same stage of civilization. The Eskimo, who form one of the most homogeneous stocks, and display the greatest uniformity in language and cultural achievements of all the Native American groups, have only one differentiated offshoot, the Aleutian Islanders. These, under the protection and isolation of their insular habitat from a very remote period, have developed to a greater extent than their Eskimo brethren of the mainland. The difference is evident in their language, religious ceremonies, and in details of their handiwork, such as embroidery and grass fiber weaving. The Haidas of the Queen Charlotte Archipelago show such a divergence in physique and culture from the related tribes of the mainland, that they have been accredited with a distinct origin from the other coast Indians. The differentiating influence is conspicuous in the speech of island people, which tends to form a distinct language or dialect or, in an archipelago, a group of dialects. The Channel Isles, along with their distinctive breeds of cattle, has each its own variant of the long oil. According to Boccaccio's narrative of a Portuguese voyage to the Canaries in 1341, the natives of one island could not understand those from another, so different were their languages. The statement was repeated by a later authority in 1455 in regard to the inhabitants of Lanzarote, Fuerteventura, Gomera and Faro, who had then been Christianized. A partial explanation is supplied by the earlier visitors, who found the Canary Guanches with no means of communication between the several islands except by swimming. In the Visayan group of the Philippines, inhabited exclusively by the civilized Visayan tribes except for the Negritos in the mountainous interior, the people of Cebu cannot understand their brethren in the adjacent islands, in Quios and Common Islands. Dialects of the Visayan are spoken. See map page 147. The differentiation of language from the nearby continental speech may be due to a higher development, especially on large islands affording very advantageous conditions, such as Great Britain and Japan. Japanese speech has some affinity with the Great Altaic linguistic family, but no close resemblance to any subgroup. It presents marked contrasts to the Chinese because it has passed beyond the agglutinative stage of development. Just as English has sloughed off more of its inflectional forms than the continental Teutonic languages, more often the difference is due to the survival of archaic forms of speech. This is especially the case on very small or remote islands, whose limited area or extreme isolation or both factors in conjunction present conditions for retardation. The speech of the Sardinians has a strong resemblance to the ancient Latin retains many inflectional forms now obsolete in the continental Romance languages, but it has also been enlivened by an infusion of Catalan words, which came in by the bridge of the Balearic Islands during the centuries of Spanish rule in Sardinia. Again, it is in Menorca and Majorca that this Catalan speech is found in its greatest purity today, on its native soil in eastern Spain, especially in Barcelona, it is gradually succumbing to the official Castilian and probably in a few centuries will be found surviving only in the protected environment of the Balearic Isles. Icelandic and the kindred dialects of the Shetland and Faroe Islands had their origin in the classic Norse of the 9th century, and are divergent forms of the speech of the Viking explorers. The old Frisian tongue of Holland, sister speech to Anglo-Saxon, survives today only in West Friesland beyond the Great Marshlands, and in the long-drawn belt of coastal islands from Terschelling through Helgoland to Silt as also on the neighboring shores of Schleswig-Holstein. This region of linguistic survival, insulated partially by the marshes or completely by the shallow, water of this lowland coast, 
reminds us of the protracted life of the archaic Lithuanian speech within a circle of Cian Swamp in Baltic Russia, and the survival of the Celtic tongue in Peninsular Brittany, Cornwall, Wales, in Ireland, and the Highlands and Islands of Scotland. Islanders are always coast dwellers with a limited hinterland, hence their stock may be differentiated from the mainland race in part for the same reason that all coastal folk in regions of maritime development are differentiated from the people of the back country, namely, because contact with the sea allows an intermittent influx of various foreign strains, which are gradually assimilated. This occasional ethnic intercrossing can be proved in greater or less degree of all island people. Here is accessibility operating against the underlying isolation of an island habitat. The English today represent a mixture of Celts with various distinct Teutonic elements, which had already diverged from one another in their separate habitats Jutes, Angles, Saxons, Danes, Norse and Norman French. The subsequent detachment of these immigrant stocks by the English Channel and North Sea from their home people, and their arrival in necessarily small bands enabled them to be readily assimilated a process which was stimulated further by the rapid increase of population, the intimate interactive life and unification of culture which characterizes all restricted areas, hence islands, like peninsulas, despite ethnic admixtures, tend to show a surprising unification of race, they hold their people aloof from others and hold them in a close embrace, shut them off and shut them in tend to force the amalgamation of race, culture and speech, moreover, their relatively small area precludes effective segregation within their own borders, except where a mountainous or jungle district affords a temporary refuge for a displaced and antagonized tribe, hence there arises a preponderance of the geographic over the ethnic and linguistic factors in the historical equation. The uniformity in cranial type prevailing all over the British Isles is amazing, it is greater than in either Spain or Scandinavia. The cephalic indices range chiefly between 77 and 79. A restricted variation as compared with the 10 points which represents the usual range for Central Europe, and the 13 between the extremes of 75 and 88 found in France and Italy. Japan stands in much the same ethnic relation to Asia as Britain to Europe. She has absorbed Dano, Mongolian, Malay and perhaps Polynesian elements, but by reason of her isolation has been left free to the